Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Julie Arafay, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. The topic of this podcast is rethinking the response to maternal early warning criteria. Has this ever happened to you? A patient meets early warning criteria, but the patient is not acutely ill at the time. The nurse may be hesitant to notify the provider that the patient has met criteria because immediate treatment may not be necessary. The provider may be frustrated when they're notified because they've been called before acute care is needed. What exactly are they supposed to do? It's a fact that often there are several early warning signs before a patient becomes acutely ill. It's also a fact that early warning criteria are designed to detect changing patient status before they become acutely ill. However, in reality, when providers and responders come to the bedside, it's often an acute clinical situation where many actions need to be done at once. In fact, most simulation-based training programs prepare teams to do just that respond in an acute situation like maternal cardiac arrest or severe hemorrhage. So is the maternal early warning criteria process flawed? I would argue strongly that the early warning criteria is not flawed. Rather, we may not have been well-trained in the appropriate response to early warning criteria when the patient is not yet acutely ill. Responding to an acutely ill patient is a high-stress situation. I've often heard teams report being less prepared than they would have liked. What would have helped the team be better prepared? Role delegation? A quick discussion on what actions on the checklist are important to do first? What needs to be communicated and to whom? What complications might also occur? What are the signs of those complications? What other steps might need to be taken if that complication occurs? If the team had just had a bit more time before they were called, they could have gotten organized faster? Certainly all these things improve performance, but they're difficult to accomplish in a crisis. However, they could be discussed and accomplished earlier before the patient becomes acutely ill, possibly when early warning criteria are first met. We need to rethink the response to early warning criteria. I'm going to use several vignettes to illustrate what I mean. The first vignette. A 40-year-old Gravita 3, now a Para 3, gave birth vaginally one hour ago. At the last assessment, heart rate was 110, up from 88, respiratory rate 24, up from 18, and a large clot was found when the patient got up to void. The patient reports no dizziness, total quantified blood loss or QBL, post-birth is now 1,500 mLs, it includes the clot but not the liquid in the urine hat. Lochia is moderate and blood pressure has not changed at 110 over 70. The patient has met early warning criteria, but the unit's busy. You hesitate to call the hospitalist for a patient that acts normal, looks normal. So 
think about what would better prepare the team if this patient experienced a severe hemorrhage? What actions could be taken now that would improve performance later? The bedside nurse. Definitely notifying the hospitalist and the charge nurse of the patient meeting early warning criteria. For the hospitalist, coming and assessing the uterus to determine what the situation is. Is acne present? Is something else happening? And then the hospitalist and the nurse discussing what amount of ongoing bleeding to call the hospitalist for, what medications need to be given now, and what medications will be used in the future. What vital signs change? What vital signs should the nurse call the hospitalist for? And at this point, in this case, consider using mean arterial pressure or MAP instead of blood pressure. And these are this is the number that's in parentheses next to the blood pressure. The patient needs a mean arterial blood pressure minimum of 60 to 65 millimeters mercury pressure to perfuse organs. This patient's current MAP, or mean arterial pressure, is 83. The hospitalist can provide an MAP that requires a call. That might be 75, whatever the hospitalist thinks is appropriate. Other vital sign changes may include a heart rate parameter and a respiratory rate parameter. The blood bank may be called to prepare blood for a possible transfusion. And the patient may need to stay in labor and delivery for an additional amount of time until they stabilize. When the charge nurse is aware of a possible hemorrhage, if a call comes from that room, the charge nurse will know that they need a response team, including a possible runner to the blood bank, the hemorrhage cart, and uterotonic medications. So the charge nurse can begin to plan for these things and think about who would fill these possible roles. In this vignette, the outcome is the patient did well. Vital signs normalized and bleeding slowed. However, the same parameters for mean arterial pressure, heart rate, and respiratory rate for calling the hospitalist were used in the postpartum unit so that there were clear parameters for a callback once the patient went to postpartum. Often I think, and I remember in my own career, watching a patient I was concerned about and being told, call me if the patient gets worse. What exactly does that mean? My, I, my ideal of worse may not be the same ideal of worse as the physician. So having these clear parameters ensures that the physician or provider is, in call, is called exactly when they want to be called back. So let's go on to vignette number two. We have an 18-year-old Gravita-1 patient with a modified WHO class 2 mitral stenosis, and, and she has been transferred to the postpartum unit 24 hours after a vaginal birth. 
The postpartum nurse is instructed to check vital signs every two hours for the first eight hours post-transfer. The patient is stable. Initial vital signs on postpartum are blood pressure 100 over 60, heart rate is 80, respiratory rate is 18, SpO2 96% on room air. Two hours later, the patient is sitting up in bed, blood pressure is unchanged at 100 over 60, heart rate is now 88, respiratory rate is 28, and SpO2 is 92%, but quickly rises to 96% when the nurse applies 2 liters by nasal cannula, 2 liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. However, when the nasal cannula is removed, the SpO2 immediately falls back to 91 to 92%. The nurse assesses breath sounds. A patient has clear lung sounds bilaterally has no complaints, and is breastfeeding the baby. However, this patient has met the early warning criteria. So what should happen next? What are you thinking could potentially be wrong with this patient? If you're thinking what I'm thinking, we could be looking at pulmonary edema. So what would help the team be better prepared if this patient potentially does have a bout of pulmonary edema. Well, it's important that the team knows what's going on. So for the bedside nurse, that means following early warning criteria and notifying the charge nurse, provider, and maternal fetal medicine. For the provider coming to the bedside and assessing the patient, consulting with the maternal fetal medicine specialist, and notifying the anesthesiologist. The provider and the nurse can then discuss key information that will dictate ongoing care of this patient. How often should vital signs be taken? What parameters will move the patient back to labor and delivery? The nurse is uh, instructed to notify the provider if SpO2 is not maintained at 96% on nasal cannula. The provider, the nurse, and the patient can discuss the importance of calling the nurse if the patient experiences shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, or the monitors begin to alarm. The provider, the nurse, and the charge nurse can discuss parameters to call the provider and parameters to move the patient back to labor and delivery. This way, if this patient's condition deteriorates, the team already has a plan. They know when to call and what is going to happen. So what happened with this patient? At the next vital sign check, the patient's SpO2 was down to 91% on nasal cannula. Heart rate was 110. The provider was notified and it was decided to move the patient back to labor and delivery to be followed by the provider and maternal fetal medicine. The patient received two doses of furosemide in the next eight hours and was able to maintain SpO2 above 96% on room air with that treatment. 
After 24 hours, the patient was transferred back to postpartum with the same SpO2 and vital sign criteria to notify the provider. And those were the same criteria that got the patient moved back to labor and delivery. So again, that may be a little stricter. It may be a little looser than maternal early warning criteria, but definitely following the maternal early warning criteria uh, process. No further issues occurred for this patient and the patient was discharged home, discharged home with the infant two days later. This patient had what we call an increasing oxygen requirement where the nasal cannula was applied and the SpO2 continued to drop. This required the next step, which is a non-rebreather mask at a higher oxygen liter per minute level. And if the patient can't maintain SpO2 with the additional oxygen, this is increasing oxygen requirement. With increasing oxygen requirement and an elevated respiratory rate, it's important to notify the anesthesiologist. Most anesthesiologists I know do not want to be called as a surprise if the patient has any difficulty breathing. And what I'm talking are pregnant patients here. Pregnant patients can be very difficult to manage their airway. And almost every anesthesiologist I know prefers to look at that airway when the patient is not acutely ill so that they can determine what they're going to need if that patient does become acutely ill. So if you don't have this agreement with your anesthesiologist and you're a nurse taking care of any OB patients, I would talk to the anesthesia team and determine when they want to be called and when they want to take a look at the airway. Okay, last vignette. A 32-year-old Gravita 2 Para 1 presents to the emergency department at 32 weeks with flu-like symptoms and uterine contractions. The patient is transferred to labor and delivery and placed on the fetal monitor. Vital signs on labor and delivery are blood pressure 120 over 70, heart rate 90, respiratory rate 20, SpO2 99%, and a temp of 37.3 centigrade or 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Fetal heart rate is category one and uterine contractions are mild every seven minutes, lasting 40 to 45 seconds. An IV is started and the patient is placed on observation. An hour later, vital signs are temp 35.5 or 96, blood pressure 110 over 65, heart rate 100, and respiratory rate 28. SpO2 is 94% on room air. Fetal monitor tracing is unchanged except the baseline is higher. The patient has met early warning criteria. So what complication do you think this patient may experience? I'm thinking sepsis. So if you want to be prepared for a patient who potentially is becoming septic, what kind of response is best accomplished early. For the nurse, again, that means following early warning criteria. And in this case, this is a teaching hospital. 
So the nurse notifies the resident and the charge nurse. The resident needs to come to the bedside, assess the patient, and at this point, the resident places the patient on a higher level of oxygen, a non-rebreather mask at eight liters per minute. The nurse and the resident agree to notify the next level, which would be the chief resident and the hospitalist. The anesthesiologist is also called to evaluate the patient for an elevated respiratory rate. Labs are ordered for a septic workup, including blood cultures, sputum cultures, and a lactate, lactate level. The physicians decide upon vital side parameters for notification. Any increase in heart rate, any increase in respiratory rate, SpO2 below 96%, the patient is now on, remember, a non-rebreather mask, and MAP, which is currently, that's mean arterial pressure, which is currently 80, but the nurse is to call if it drops to 70. So very clear criteria. Any increase in heart rate or respiratory rate at baseline and the MAP. The physician and the nurses have the discussion, possibly that this is sepsis. What are other signs and symptoms that the nurse needs to be aware of and look for? In this particular hospital, there is a house-wide sepsis RRT. So the criteria is reviewed, and if the patient meets that criteria, the house-wide RRT sepsis team will be called. The components of a one-hour bundle are reviewed and supplies are brought to the patient's room. The neonatal intensive care unit is also consulted, so they're aware of the fact that this patient is here and possibly may be septic. And criteria for an emergency C-section if fetal heart rate changes. All of this discussion allows the team to be better prepared to take care of this patient. So what happened? Within an hour, the patient met the criteria for a sepsis RRT and one was called. The one-hour sepsis bundle was started and they had labs to compare to because a lot of those sepsis labs were drawn ahead of time, so there was a basis of comparison there. It was decided to move the patient to the ICU after discussion with maternal fetal medicine, the provider, the ICU, and the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. The patient was hydrated, placed on BiPAP, and was stabilized within 72 hours. Early warning criteria gave the team time to determine clear parameters for worsening illness, to plan ahead for the most likely diagnosis and complications. It allows the team time to discuss what information is important, important to communicate, when and to whom. Unit staff can prepare equipment and supplies that may be needed. Those in charge are aware that the patient may require more help and intervention. It can be determined what consults would be helpful and when they should be called. Early warning criteria gave the team time to begin to prepare for a possible emergency. We need to use this time to clarify who may be needed and for the nurse or physician in charge to have a strategy to assign roles and priority tasks. 
rethink the response to early warning criteria and be better prepared for your next emergency. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, on X at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.